Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, Alistair Begg has gone woke. Not really. No, and that really isn't exactly true, but a lot of people are saying it on the internet and in other places. So then it must be true. (laughs) It's worth exploring. Uh, but if you don't know who Alistair Begg is, he's uh, like this really popular uh, Bible teacher, and he's a pretty conservative guy. And he's a, a longtime pastor and author, and he's pretty um, theologically conservative. Um, and, you know, by all accounts, it seems like he's a pretty good dude. And, uh, you know, he, again, he's been a pastor of a church for decades. He's had this radio ministry for, you know, at least like 20 years or so. And um, so he's been a pretty trustworthy voice. Uh, that was until recently when he said some stuff that landed him in hot water. And now his radio program, which is called Truth for Life, has been pulled from 1,800 radio stations. Uh, American Family Radio, which is this huge uh, radio network of uh, different programs, uh, they, uh, they've been carrying his program for, I think, like 17 years, 20 years, something like that. It's been a long time, yeah. Yeah. Last week, they announced that they were dropping him because of what he said. Well, what did he say, Tamara? I'm so glad that you asked me that question. I was very curious. <laughs> well, in an interview, uh, which was in September, I think it was, uh, he uh, was talking about uh, a woman who came to him for advice about attending her grandson's wedding. But her grandson uh, was getting married to someone who is trans. And basically what Begg said uh, is that he told the woman that, uh, you know, as long as her grandson knew that she, she had a stance on marriage as between one man and one woman, and that uh, she had, you know, the biblical understanding of gender, uh, that, you know, we should live into the gender that matches our biology. And as long as he understood that she wasn't changing her view on that, that she should go to the wedding and that she should even bring him Uh, a gift. And so he had that interview in September. It's been out there on the airwaves for, you know, however many months now, but it it went viral. Uh, That clip of it went viral a couple of weeks ago. Uh, And Beg, he has stood by his, his comments and his advice that he gave. And so now he's really just being raked over the coals. And so I thought that we would uh, talk about that today. Uh, What exactly did uh, Alistair Begg say? Do we agree or disagree with what he said? And if we disagree, um, was it so egregious or so bad uh, that he deserves to be canceled after you know decades of pastoral ministry, of a teaching ministry, being you know this trusted voice uh, within you know a pretty broad segment of evangelicalism? But I think also I thought that we'd explore some of these more complicated questions of how it is that we can be a loving presence in the lives of. LGBTQ folks who are our loved ones, who are our community members, uh, how do we do that while still holding to uh, a biblical or a traditional sexual ethic? It's uh, a view of marriage, a view of gender that aligns with what we uh, feel convicted is from the scriptures. How do we do that without sacrificing relationships, without sacrificing truth? Where's the gray within that? Where's the black and white? Uh, And how do we navigate all of that? So that's what I want to talk about today, but we'll dive into that in just a moment. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So, Alistair Begg, who has been a, a trusted voice among evangelicals for decades, 
He's recently, you know, come under fire for advising a woman to attend her grandson's wedding with a transgender person. And I wanted to take a closer look at his remarks because I feel like, beg, you know, as someone who has, you know, proven himself over the course of decades as someone who's theologically sound, he's taught at seminaries. Uh, I think most notably, he's taught at uh, the Master's Seminary, which is John MacArthur's uh, seminary. Uh, I think as someone who has like been in those spaces and who has been you know trustworthy as a biblical exegete and a preacher, he at least deserves the benefit of the doubt in this situation. I think it's also worth noting that he has not changed his position on marriage or gender. He still affirms the traditional view that marriage is between one woman and one man for life. And he also believes that people are meant to live into the gender identity that matches with their biology. However, in an interview that he gave in September, and we'll link to it in the show notes just so you can listen to that if you want to, he said that this this woman came to him uh, for advice about attending her grandson's wedding to a transgender person. And I wanted to read a bit of a transcription from that just so you can kind of get a sense of what exactly he said and kind of a little bit of the tone and uh, the nuances that were within that. So I wanted to read a little bit of that to you. But he said, quote, And in a conversation just like that a few days ago, and people may not like this answer, but I asked the grandmother, does your grandson understand your belief in Jesus? She said, yes. Does your grandson understand that your belief in Jesus makes it such that you can't countenance in any affirming way the choices that he has made in life? Yes. I said, well then, okay, as long as he knows that, then I suggest that you do go to the ceremony, and I suggest that you buy him a gift. Oh, she said, what? She was caught off guard. I said, well, here's the thing. Your love for them may catch them off guard, but your absence will simply reinforce the fact that they said, these people are what I always thought, judgmental, critical, unprepared to countenance anything. And it is a fine line, isn't it? It really is. And people need to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. But I think we're going to take that risk. I think we're going to have to take that risk a lot more if we want to build bridges into the hearts and lives of those who don't understand Jesus and don't understand that he is a king, end quote. So basically what Begg said and what he was arguing is that you don't necessarily have to change your views on marriage or gender or any of that to go to that ceremony that you don't agree with. Um, you can kind of just go and let your grandson know that you know grandma still loves him, even though he's making this choice. Uh, she still wants to be a part of his life. And that going to this ceremony uh, can be a, you know a big symbol in that direction and may still keep you in the conversation uh, of you know the gospel and who Jesus is and all of those types of things. Well, after this clip went viral, a bunch of people came out and they tried to get Beg to recant or repent. That was the, the language that was used. And one of those was American Family Radio, which has been distributing his Bible teaching program, again, as we said, for like a couple decades now. Um, and in a broadcast announcement, we'll also link to that in the show notes if you want to watch that, uh, they, they said that they would be dropping Beg, and the execs, they kind of had this discussion and they kind of explained what happened. Uh, and they had said that they, you know, basically had their people talk to his people. Uh, and when he refused to recant or repent, they used, you know, both of those words, uh, they ended the business relationship with him. And, you know, they, they went on to like really lay into him. And one of the, the folks in that, uh, broadcast, they said, quote, Alistair Begg has such a long track record of biblical fidelity and truthfully teaching the word of God that this is extremely disappointing. Uh, this isn't something we saw coming. And another guy argued that, you know, you can't go to a gay wedding without approving of it, like going to it is approving of it. And he also said uh, that it was a sinful act to, you know, go to this wedding ceremony. And then he said, quote, in my personal opinion, you could be culpable in God's eyes, if those people go to hell, because you would not preach the gospel to them, and you would not preach the gospel of repentance and faith, end quote. So those are kind of the two sides of the argument that, uh, at least on the side of let's cancel Alistair Begg, feels very strongly about. But Tamara, what do you think about the question itself? Like, is it okay for a Christian to attend a gay wedding of a family member or a friend? And is that a question that we can agree to disagree on or not so much? So first, I um, I guess I'll answer your first question first. 
and I'll take it in the order you gave it to me because <laughs> um, I was going to flip it, but I won't. I'll leave it as you asked it. So the question really is um, the question that was posed to Alistair Bragg, and that's whether or not a Christian should attend one of these weddings. Um, I actually land on the a different side than where Alistair Bragg lands. Um, in that, uh, the way that I understand the attendance of um, a wedding is the celebration of the coming together of this couple. Um, and I wouldn't be able to, in good conscience, attend a wedding that I would not be able to celebrate um, the coming together of that union. Um, and so I don't necessarily think that it means um, it's like this sinful act to attend it. But just as I weigh out the implications and what it is that you're stating is happening by your attendance, um, I do think in, in many ways you're, you're saying like, I am celebrating the union of these two people coming together and um, holding to the traditional view of marriage. I wouldn't be able to sit there and say, I am celebrating this, knowing that it goes against um, the biblical view of marriage with one man and one woman. Just to put some, I guess, skin on it a little bit more, like let's say, you know, someone in your own family, not your grandchild, because you're much too young and vibrant for that to really be well, thank you. relevant to you at this current juncture of your life. But let's say like, uh, like your cousin or your niece or your nephew, they came to you and they said, hey, I understand how you feel about these things and um, all of that. And I'm not necessarily asking you to change your view on that. But I would like for you to be there as someone who's important in my life at this important you know, moment of my life. Um, does that kind of, as you think through the relational implications and the, re- the, the re- relationship you have with that person, does that kind of murky the waters a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Um, does it, it, you know, does it, it makes, yeah, so it makes it difficult in deciding. Um, like, I would want to uh, not be harsh in my response, but I still think that uh, in my attending, it is this celebration of the coming together of the couple. And um, even if it were my niece or my nephew, like, I would have a really difficult time saying, you know, what, I'm going to push everything aside um, in in my thoughts on marriage and my thoughts on like um, sexuality um, and attend this because it's different than saying like, um, will you attend our, I don't know, any other party they're throwing, right? Like any other event that they're having. What about like a, different. a wedding shower? Well, that's still... Really it's not actually the ceremony. It's just like a, well, like a, I don't know if it'd be like a whatever situation, bridal shower or whatever mm-hmm. kind of spousal shower that they would have in this particular oh, like an engagement arrangement. Party or something? Yeah, yeah engage, okay. engagement party. Okay. That's what I'm thinking um, I would have to think on that some more. Mm-hmm. Because the, even that, I would feel a little, um, I would feel some tension around it. And I do understand, okay, so we're not talking about Alistair Begg yet, but I do think we need to get there. Um, so just in isolating this question alone, I do understand that it makes it difficult. It makes it very challenging to actually engage and interact with relationships um, around this topic. But um, as you're attending, you're saying like, I uh, am excited about what's happening. I'm here to support this thing, uh, this union of these two people. And that just becomes really, really challenging when you completely disagree with everything that's happening in front of you. Mm. So you're saying that there's no circumstance under which you would be able to go to a gay wedding ever. So um, you're using very strong language and saying like never, ever under any circumstances. I don't feel I'm not thinking it's that strong of a conviction insofar as like this is an absolute sin for me even to attend. But I do think that there's something within my own conscience about sitting um, in a wedding that is, um, whether it's like trans or homosexuality, anything other than the uh, biblical 
view of marriage and sexuality, uh, I do think that there is just a pull at my own conscience to be able to attend that. And uh, I want to make space for the fact that that's difficult when it's your family, when it's people you love, when there's actual faces behind the conversation. So it's easy to say like, no, absolutely not, never, ever. Uh, but I'm not saying that because I'm also imagining, like like you said, what if it were one of my nieces or nephews? And I'm picturing all of their faces in my mind right now thinking, how would I engage in this conversation with them? And right now, my thought is uh, it I just wouldn't be able to do that in good conscience knowing um, I cannot actually support the union that's happening in front of me. And so what is their desire for me to attend? Is it just for me to see this moment happen? Like what is that hope behind my attendance as well? Mm-hmm. So that's also the thing, right? Like why, if they know I am um, absolutely against it, why would we be having this conversation of like, I really just need you to go to this thing? Mm-hmm. So like, it's hard when there's not a whole lot of like details around the relationship. Um, but as I'm sitting here discussing it now and not actually having people in front of me that I can say the nuances of it, um, it would really be um, against my own conscience that I wouldn't be able to sit well knowing I have attended this, supporting it, celebrating it, being happy for it, this joyous occasion when it is against the biblical view of marriage. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you're saying you feel pretty strongly no, but you would n- never say never mm-hmm. necessarily, which means that you're probably okay with a certain measure of disagreement among Christians who hold to the traditional yes. so that sexual was... ethic. So you wouldn't necessarily fault somebody, say a parent, who goes to their son or daughter's same-sex wedding um, so long as you know it's within the same kind of confines of what we're talking about here, right. someone who's not changing their view but is going to that event uh, to support not the union but to support the person that they love, to just remain and be a presence in their life. Um, of this person that they love. And I think as we're talking about this conversation related to um, just the comments that Alistair Begg made, um, he was clear in like, saying, like, do does your um, grandson understand your be- beliefs on marriage? And are, is that very clear? Or is it like, mm, well, grandma just wants to come and support me and she's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, that is definitely where things probably get more problematic and like, well, you just don't view um, marriage in the same way that we, we see it happening and unfolding within scripture. Um, Are you saying but that there would be probably also a danger in if you do go and let's say there's that clear understanding of like, here's my view of sex and marriage and gender. And that person goes, the person who is getting married, they may take that as, you know, uh, a small win in right. the grand scheme of things mm-hmm. really. And what they're hoping is that it, it is the first step in you becoming fully LGBTQ affirming. Whereas on your side, it's just a step in hopefully they will see that your love for them uh, is rooted in your love of Jesus and that they will be drawn to Jesus through that. So there's kind of like this, uh, theological, ideological tug of war happening on each side, where they may interpret it as, "Hey, this is a first step in the right direction," whereas the person going might not, and that in itself could create confusion and maybe relational strife down the road, where you could have had that kind of more clear upfront, yeah, in a different way. So, yeah, and I think there is an aspect. Um, it this is just so complicated, but there are clear convictions that we are supposed to hold as believers that set us apart as believers that set us apart from the rest of the world um that are the ways of jesus knowing that that is the true like uh goodness that he hasn't imparted onto the world and that he has created for the world to be right uh so there are convictions that we are to hold that um they are going to rub against the world. They're going to be in conflict with the world and they're going to be in conflict with family members. 
Uh, and that's a tension that as Christians, we have to hold in general in a lot of different ways. And this is one of those topics that, again, I understand stepping forward in love to someone who might be in a same-sex marriage, who might be in a same-sex relationship, who might be transgender themselves. So there's uh, to completely uh, say, I can have no interaction with this person. I can have uh, no connection, no relationship. That is not biblical. But to hold true to your convictions and the supporting of these unions, there's a lot of other things that uh, I hesitate to give other examples of like, um, if my friend was doing X, Y, or Z, like, would I support that in this way? Because uh, I think the other examples kind of fall short of measuring up with this scenario. So I'm just thinking like, if I have a friend who, um, I don't know, is, is in other, some other lifestyle that's contrary to the Christian lifestyle. That uh, the, is the example that the uh, American family radio people use were like, what if, you know, you had a friend who cheated on his wife and now he's getting married to the woman that he cheated on his wife with? Would you go to that wedding? Because clearly, by the same standard, that is not the type of union that a Christian would endorse. I mean, that's probably, that's, I, mean, that's, I mean, that's a, maybe a fair, unfair parallel, but it is yeah. a parallel because it's in the same yeah, framework of like, what do we consider mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. kind of a Christian union? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that might be, it's a little unfair in some ways, but yeah, it's hard to even just draw an example that's a parallel. I mean, would you consider going offensive. to that wedding? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I would, do you feel I mean, differently about that than you do the same-sex wedding? No, I would still feel the same. It's the same it's kind the of, same it's kind like of the same kind of ambivalence, but it's the yeah. same. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing is I do, if someone were to say they've arrived at this and um, based on the details and uh, the relational aspects, um, if they end up saying they're going, I am not in the view of like, that's an absolute sin. You are uh, a heretic and you're, you don't believe in the gospel. I think that's pushing it way too far. Um, and you're becoming more of a legalist in a lot of ways than you are um, someone who's trying to hold the nuance of um, like, what is truth and love and how do we hold those things together? But I I do feel a a great sense of, as Christians, we are to hold to convictions that are going to make things uncomfortable, that aren't necessarily going to feel like we're stepping forward. But I also think in in this, for the sake of our witness too, is it not slightly hypocritical that we would say like, I absolutely don't agree with any of this. I actually think it's contrary to what we see laid out in scripture, but I'm going to come and attend just because I, I I want you to know that I still love you, mm-hmm. um, that just it it seems um, like you you're not actually pushing forward the message you think you're pushing forward mm-hmm. um, because your attendance is also being like I'm fine here like this this is okay in in my eyes this is okay for me as a believer. Um, when there are certain spaces that we just can't be okay with those things mm-hmm. because of what um, is clear in clearly laid out in scripture. Yeah. I think for me, I am somewhat ambivalent or agnostic about it. I lean no. And my sense is that uh, this probably wouldn't be make or break either for my own faith or, or depending on the context and, you know, the relational dynamics that are going on, if that person's already willing to be in relationship with me still, given my view, um, wouldn't necessarily be make or break for that relationship with that person. Um, but I still lean no. But it's like, hmm. I kind of see two um, different dynamics from, like, uh, the life of Jesus that are in tension. And it's kind of about discerning like where this is on that tension because on the one hand you have Jesus who said anyone who doesn't hate their mother and father and brother and sister is not fit to follow me meaning that like sometimes even in the closest relationships that you have you have to break away in some measure in some very dramatic measure in order to follow Jesus while at the same time you see Jesus all the time going to the houses and the parties and the kickbacks of all of the um, the prostitutes and the tax collectors 
and you know the people who are swindling their own countrymen and you know all these kinds of people uh, uh, to the point where uh, Jesus was viewed by the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the scribes as you know you know is Jesus some kind of sexual deviant or something that he's like hanging out with these people and going to their parties and all this kind of stuff. Jesus never did what they did. He never celebrated what they did, but he was still in that space with them. But, but so I there's think, a, there's a there's somewhere you could make an argument a very strong yeah. argument on either side of that. Um but it seems kind of murky in the middle of how do you uh you know walk the narrow path of following Jesus while also having this very broad band love and even to a certain measure acceptance of other people. Um while not affirming necessarily their life choices. Yeah, but I think there's there's a significance behind a wedding and a ceremony and everything that goes into that, uh, that it has a weightier impact than just attending a party, hmm. than just attending an event that's being thrown. Honestly, even like if this couple had a baby shower, I would attend. Mm-hmm. Um, well, would you like what? That's what is different. the nature of that baby? Is that a surrogate baby? Because that's a whole other question. Are they adopting a child? There's, I mean, well, there's I lots of know. other more I questions mean, within that <laughs> that make it even more complex. Based on you know, the same sex relationship is not a relationship of procreation. So there's other right. So if it's you know, like, bioethical questions and other moral quandaries that befall that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think you're going to have other bio. This is totally going off on a tangent, but you're going to have other bioethical questions related to other baby showers as well. Mm, where whether like or IVF or something yeah, like that, yeah. like irregardless of. Um, uh, a homosexual couple or a heterosexual couple. Like you can, you still have the possibility for those questions. Right. But in any same sex couple, that right. question is always going to be there. That's true. So then if it's an adoption, baby shower. Okay. So <laughs> uh, like, I, I don't think I'd have any issues attending that because I'm not supporting the union of um, them stepping together into marriage, into matrimony and um, celebrating that as this joyous occasion um, and I, again, I don't necessarily think that the attendance of somebody is like, um, like the stamp of approval, but I do think that your attendance is in support of and celebrating what is happening on that day mm-hmm. and what that day symbolizes and what that day represents. And I'm just thinking that about any wedding I attend, mm. any wedding I attend, like there is just this, um, yeah, this just it's a joyous occasion as you're seeing these two people come together and start this life together and join um, and say their vows and their commitments to one another and um, enter into this uh, binding agreement that they are going to love and cherish one another. So that I feel that sense of any wedding that I'm going to, mm-hmm. um, I don't always know the full backstory of things, but if I am preview to it, and that's a little bit easier to see with your eyes, right? Yeah. When it is a some same sex couple, um, I do think that just your attendance um, is again maybe not saying like I'm giving a stamp of approval because they don't necessarily need that just by you attending. But it is a celebrating of the unity of the couple. Yeah. This is another question that's not in the notes, but um, and may take us down a different rabbit trail. But when you think about marriage, do you think of that o- always as a Christian institution? Or is that a human institution of which Christians have a very you know, distinct view of? that has been given to us by God. Cause I feel like that changes the texture of the conversation a little bit because if we view marriage fundamentally as a Christian institution, then any marriage between Christians or non-Christians or whomever that isn't within our view of that, then we would see as an illegitimate union. Does that make sense? Kind of. But if, we see marriage as a human institution that in many ways is pre-Christian and has operated outside of Christianity and would operate if Christianity, you know, in some alternate reality didn't exist. Um, although that, that doesn't make any sense because how could that not be 
Christ made everything. Um, but yeah, let's just, for I the think- sake of argument, it's a is it a natural revelation that Christians have a special revelation uh, globbed onto that reveals the true essence of it, or is it you have to view it from the Christian side of things first, or can we make a distinction between Christian and non-Christian weddings? Well, I think you can. I think I'm understanding your question. So the fact that it is God who created man and woman and the unification of them, not only just biologically, right? But I mean, you you see that in the very beginning of scripture, this unity between Adam and Eve um, and the, the holy union of bringing them together, uh, that is fundamentally created by God. And so sure, has that then been made a available to all men and women, whether or not they're Christian or not? Yes, because you're able to get married, right? Whether you say you're a believer. That's not distinctively um, a Christian thing to be married. That is a human thing, but it is something that God created for humans uh, to have available to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just wondering if there's like a, there would be a difference between like, Let's say someone who, um, I mean, because then you're getting into would say someone who would call themselves a gay Christian, and who is fully affirming. And is there a fundamental difference between like I'm getting married as a Christian in this gay wedding to someone who's like I don't believe in God and I'm gay and I'm in a gay wedding? Is there uh, a difference in the like the terms of judgment that or discernment that you would place onto that? Um depending on whether that person is saying like, I'm having a Christian wedding as opposed to I'm not having a Christian wedding. Or does that distinction not mean anything? In terms of my attendance of this? Yes. I don't think it makes a difference um, because it's still supporting a union that God did not create. Okay. So what about a non, just to play devil's advocate even further and kind of press into that. What about a non-Christian couple say who, um, where it would break the rules of of a biblical marriage. Let's say someone who, um, you know, divorced their their spouse for unbiblical reasons. They're getting remarried. They're not Christians. You're not holding them to that standard. Um, would that be different for a non Christian couple, or would you still not support you know going to that, or or would you put a a higher level of discernment or judgment on the Christian couple in that context? And like, where do we kind of draw that line? Yeah, because then you're also trying to draw a line like, well, did you have sex outside of marriage before you stepped into this marriage? If you did, then I can't support this. Like then you start becoming such a legalist about every like every single minute thing. And to say, well, that's not fair to draw the line with same sex couples and not with somebody who, you know, had sexual relations outside of marriage. Um, but I think there is a difference in uh, fundamentally what's happening as you're entering into this union. Uh, and the idea is that it's for all of your life, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, you're you're stepping into this union of two people that um, are like you can't change the essence of that relationship when it's a same couple marriage. I mean, same gender marriage. Mm-hmm. How do you, where is the redemption in that marriage? Mm-hmm. Because the gender that you are is what you are. And I know that's actually opposite to what our world thinks today, but right. like that's fundamentally is not going to change, right? Where if you have these other elements within uh, a heterosexual relationship, there is opportunity for redemption and forgiveness of those sins. But the only way for that um, same-sex couple to be redeemed within that relationship is actually for that relationship to end. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think that's where it, it, it's just fundamentally different based on the way that it functions. Yeah. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that we do have to draw lines. Like you said, there are lines that that are drawn somewhere and, uh, I don't say it as like, I gotcha. Like, oh, see, you drew a line here, but you didn't draw a line there. 
uh, we have to draw a line somewhere, and, and the line sometimes is, you know, real thin. So we're, we're going to draw it, uh, but uh, not as like a gotcha or something like that, but like more as like a matter of like hmm, introspection, like where am I drawing the lines and why am I drawing in there? Is it cultural that because that I'm drawing them there? Because, you know, that's what I'm comfortable with and what I'm, I was raised in. And, you know, this is beyond mm-hmm. the pale of that Yeah, because I was, you know, we were raised in a culture where people got divorced for unbiblical reasons and remarried for unbiblical reasons. And, you know, nobody in the church necessarily batted an eye within the past, you know, ever since like no fault divorce, you know, that's kind of been the order right. of the day, even within the church. Um, and that's a whole different conversation as to the politics of that and, you know, uh, women's rights and, you know, all those kinds of things that we're kind of just setting to the side right now. Um, but because we're culturally comfortable with that, but we're at a cultural inflection point, we're now, we're what, like 10 years on from Obergefell? And this actually being a, a question that we actually have to wrestle with, um, will like uh, later generations have a different kind of cultural conception of that where they'd be comfortable attending that even though they they don't agree with it and they still hold to the traditional sexual ethic um like to what measure is it our cultural squeamishness and to what measure is it actual theological conviction when there's other theological convictions where we're like hmm ah ooh like I'll overlook yeah. that I think that's fair and that's those are fair questions but the problem is is they're not all measured the same Mm, based on certain details that you can't measure them quite the same. And maybe there are some examples that then I'd have to go back and really think through this a little bit more. But as of now, like there is a very distinctive difference um, within the setting up of this marriage of a same-sex couple. Mm -hmm. That once you've entered into that, again, like you... If it's two females, like they're not going to change. One isn't going to become a male. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then the unity of that is fine. Mm-hmm. In that like God's going to work through and redeem that. Um, because the reality is we are humans and there are aspects of uh, we're, we're sinners and we're in a fallen world. And so um, I believe and know that God can redeem all things and will be redeeming all things. Um, but as you look within the context of that marriage, um, it it fundamentally goes against the unity of one man and one woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. D- so that's what I'm saying. Like, it's just distinctively that there's different. A, there is a line when you cross that is what you're saying. Yeah. And there maybe there's some other lines somewhere else, too, that aren't within the context of this conversation. As but you talk maybe that's about a, a bolded a marriage, line. But that one is mm-hmm. clearly there. And and maybe as you want to list other examples, you can weigh out, are these also over the line too? And how do we draw these ones? But this one, it, it's just, it just seems very clear. Yeah. Because of its distinctive differences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So it sounds like, as a summary, we would lean towards no. You would probably lean no more strongly than I would, but I lean no Nonetheless, but we wouldn't necessarily fault another Christian for coming to a different conclusion. Uh, I think as long no, as they're and- coming to that conclusion thoughtfully, uh, prayerfully, and n- not uh, in a way of just kind of cowardice, but in a way of mm. like actively trying to mm. think through these things and like, how do I love my neighbor or my son or my daughter or my nephew or my grandson? Yeah. And I think. Um- to to arrive at the assumption that someone who would attend one of these weddings because it's obviously different than where we would land thereby makes them a sinner or like a heretic i that is taking it too far and not allowing space for the nuanced decision making that has to happen within um our own cultural context because something like this wouldn't have even happened within uh the first century Mm -hmm. right and it's only now happening for us what how many years ago 10 years ago i think 2014 was so so even like previous generations this wouldn't have been a conversation they were having because it wouldn't have been happening right right because it yeah wasn't legal yeah so i do want to kind of now take a step back now that we've made all of that clear as mud to look again at <laughs> right. Alistair Begg's situation and ha- the the visceral response that that has garnered. Um, but we'll dive into that in just a moment. 
Okay, so I work for a Christian publication, and uh, so we're constantly sorting through Christian news stories. And there's this one type of story that pops up, um, if not weekly, like every other week. Uh, and I imagine them as being part of this series that I've titled Christians Getting Mad at Other Christians for Not Being Mean Enough to Gay People. Do you think that this situation with Alistair Begg getting pulled from 1,800 radio stations uh, after decades of being uh, a theologically trustworthy voice, would you say that that's a fair assessment of, of what's going on here? Does it fall into that category? Or am I speaking too strongly on his behalf? So if he were to have changed his view on marriage and his view on um, sexuality and gender identity. Which for him would have been a, a pretty that, significant departure. Yes. Then then the response makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, because he has just moved away from uh, the the very traditional view and it's not even traditional in like, you know, this long standing view, but, uh, when we I say traditional, say, what we mean is from the new Testament, yes. the unbroken tradition of the right. church from right. then forward. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I say traditional, I'm like, Hmm, that's not. Yes. So thank you for defining that. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he would have moved away from the traditional view, but the fact that he didn't and his response is also, uh, supported by, how is it that we can continue to showcase the gospel uh, in settings that people would be surprised by the gospel being there? Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, I don't necessarily agree that that's the way that it's going to shake out. Um, but because he is still holding to the traditional view and his response is how, like, wrestling with how do you continue to uh, show the light of Christ in context that people are for sure not expecting it. Um, I I think the response was rather strong. Yeah, and I think even if you go back and listen to the audio of uh, him giving these remarks, um, there was a couple of different points at which he kind of indicated that he wasn't taking such a strong stance, like, you have to do this for the sake of the gospel. But he's like, you know, listen, people are not going to like this answer. And he said at one point, like, hey, like, you have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Mm -hmm. meaning like this is like something that you got to think about. But here's where I feel convicted. And it just felt like it was like, you know, fairly, you know, nuanced. He wasn't dogmatic about it. Um, He was speaking not in terms of abstract. Like We're we're talking in abstract here. We are. He was talking in a very pastoral moment, very relational context, um, and even left open room for disagreement with him. Um, it just seems like the response on the other side is that uh, people aren't willing to, uh, leave room enough for disagreement on their side of things. It's like either you're with me a hundred percent or you are, you know, on the drift to LGBTQ affirming and all that that entails. And you have to throw out the whole Bible and you're probably Satanist and the whole thing. Like it just like, devolves like really quickly. From that, there was one comment I can't remember where I saw it, but I read it like maybe in the comment section of something. Of uh, someone wrote like, "I wouldn't go to one of these weddings, and anybody who knows me would know not to ask me." And I was like, "Oh, like that's definitely not the posture." I mean, honestly, if there was someone in my life who was uh, about to get married and it was a same-sex marriage, um, and uh, they felt. Uh, that I loved them enough and that they felt the courage enough to ask me, I wouldn't want to honor that in some way by having some kind of heartfelt discussion, even if I don't go to the wedding. And I think that that would be an indication that I'm some kind of a gospel presence in their life. When Even though that they know that I have this hard theological line against what they're doing, they know that I'm willing to be a part of their life, even though that, you know, they're on the other side of that divide and they would even, you know, kind of dare to hope that I would, they would go to that. But there's just something kind of rotten, I think, about saying like, yeah, anybody who knows me would, would know not even to dare to hope 
that I would support them in any way in this pivotal moment in their life. Right. And I think that's the posture that Alistair Begg was trying to move away from. Um, And because unfortunately, it is the assumed response by most Christians, right? Mm -hmm. Is um, in his um, like explanation of this too is it's already assumed that Christians are going to lean on the side of judgment um, against same-sex marriage. Um, And he's trying to create space for there to still be an opportunity to, to bring the light of Christ into that and to bring the gospel into that and not it to be just this assumed sense of judgment by a Christian. Yeah. So he's, he's really trying to wade into that in real life matters, which is a grandma calling him, asking him for uh, his biblical wisdom on this. Yeah. And I think too, um, even him, especially in the spaces that he's celebrated in, I think even him kind of wading into that into in like a kind of a humble way, but kind of like an open way without changing his view. I think in, in some ways in and of itself is really helpful, uh, given the fact that, you know, the lot of places that he speaks and is invited, whether we're talking about, you know, John MacArthur's seminary or other kind of reformed or reformed Baptist circles where there is, you know, a lot of, you know, dogmatism uh, that he's in that space. And he did this at great personal cost. I just think about the person who maybe is a part of those congregations who is like wrestling with that and maybe they would have gone uh, and that, you know, their conscience could have, you know, uh, kind of held that intention uh, but they maybe would not do that because they know that they would be like excommunicated from their congregation uh, if their congregation found out or if their congregation didn't find out uh, that they would have to live with some sort of like shame or stigma or something like that. And there's not even like a space to like honestly wrestle with that. And again, like I'm coming on the other side and like, mm, I think I probably don't agree with you on that. But I think him even wading into that with a sense of openness um, uh, it is important and is very pastoral because these are the real things of life mm-hmm. and people are dealing with that um, that I think is, in many evangelical circles is absent because we're we're so like blinded by the culture war of like we have to hold the line of you know the the culture that's coming and trying to shut down our churches because of COVID and you know like all these kinds of like embattled kind of cultural warrior mentalities um, I think um, his response kind of being in those spaces, but I've never really known him to be a cultural warrior. Um, mm, I haven't no. li- listened to a ton of his stuff, but he's not like, he's not pounding the pulpit on a lot of these types of things no. uh, that I've ever heard. I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I, I've never seen anything of him, you know, to that kind of tone or tenor, whereas a lot of, you know, the people that the circles he runs in, there is a lot of that. Um, so I think there was something important about him speaking to that in such a way. And again, at great personal cost, it's really unfortunate because if there was anybody who could have waited in that conversation and kind of spoken just a little bit of nuance and reason, it would be someone like Alistair Begg. But even Alistair Begg is not safe to have these kinds of conversations mm, yeah. in those circles, even though he has, you know, a track record, even as the people who are trying to cancel him have said, he has this track record of faithfully teaching the Bible and being like a trustworthy voice, theologically solid and all the rest. Well, I want to kind of, uh, sort of the last bit of here to kind of broaden the conversation a little bit more just outside of marriage, because um, there are people in our churches who are uh, gay, who are same-sex attracted, um, for some of us, maybe e- uh, maybe even in same-sex relationships. The last two churches that I've been a part of, there have been attenders who were in same-sex relationships who had began uh, attending the churches. Um, and that creates a level of complexity as well. Because on the one hand, you hope that those people would be comfortable enough to come if they're seeking Jesus, uh, even if they haven't fully bought into uh, the sexual ethic of Christianity. That, you know, you'd hope you'd be the kind of space that they, even if they don't buy into everything that you're selling morally, that there's, there's something of the, 
the allure of Jesus that is drawing them into that space. But then once they're drawn into that space, you know, after if they give their life to Jesus, there has to be a certain level of alignment before they can kind of fully participate in everything that the church is doing. So when you kind of think about uh, that dynamic, um, say with someone in a same-sex relationship, to what measure do you think uh, those folks can be included in the life of the church? And what things do we need to gatekeep in terms of serving, leadership, all those types of things? Like how do we begin to navigate those complexities and draw lines, whether those lines are bold or squiggly or dotted in certain places? I think um, probably going to have some squiggly dotted lines. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and and not so many bold lines that are going to be uh, universally applied to every church because the the beauty of the church in a lot of ways is that uh, the way that it's actually functioned and carries out from a day-to-day like uh, structural perspective might vary from church to church, denomination to denomination. Mm-hmm. Um because even how you define so think, offices, deacons, yeah, elders, how do you even define things. what a leader is? How membership. do you define what serving is? Membership. Mm-hmm. Um, you have some churches that don't do membership at all, or if they have membership, it it's just different. In um, yeah, so I think it's hard to make any of those distinctions clearly here because um, every church and denomination is quite different in the way that they define those things. Um, but I agree. I think uh, having a, a space for people who want to seek Jesus and are curious about Jesus and want to know more about Jesus, the fact that they there's a level of comfortability to step it, foot into the church is a good thing. Um, Jesus most certainly would have been hanging around people who were, who were wrestling with this. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I have no doubt about that. And, and he so would probably as, be hanging out with people who are walking dead in the wrong direction on this. Right. Right. Uh, so I think there is a um, an aspect of the church should be a place that uh, someone who is dealing with this or, or their conviction is like, there's absolutely nothing wrong with this, um, should be able to walk into your church and feel welcomed and not think, Wow, I went in there and I absolutely know I was not allowed there and I left. Mm. Uh, so how do we make people feel welcomed? Um, and that doesn't mean that you don't speak truth mm-hmm. from every every side of it, right? Like from the pulpit, from... Uh, whatever aspects of the church that are that are taking place doesn't mean that you shy away just so that they feel well anyone who is uh, same-sex attracted or in a same-sex relationship or even just figuring out where they're at um because if we didn't want people to feel welcome in uh their struggles and in their sin then i'm not really sure what the church is doing right Mm -hmm. Um, because we all are wrestling with something that we want to know we can come to jesus with that thing and this is absolutely no different. Um, but as we're talking about the logistics of church, I guess the only like really bold line that I can draw that should be paralleled universally across any, you know, evangelistic church is uh, leadership for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have someone that's in leadership that is blatantly not aligned with um, the beliefs of the church or the very core beliefs of um, biblical tradition, then uh, I think that's that's a huge issue because, um, yeah, you just can't have somebody leading who is misaligned. And, and that is just really in regard to any other aspect of their lifestyle too, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you have somebody who's just like, I don't know, openly cheating on their wife and everybody knows it and you're like, ah, oh, well, he's just sorting that out. <laughs> just working through it. Yeah. Like you wouldn't have that person in leadership. And so I think that there are some very... Um, just blatant things that uh, if there's a public misalignment and it's it's very aware and it's blatant in the way that they're living their life. Um, now, of course, you have leaderships that have other you know sin factors that they're dealing with, but they're they're not as like 
uh, I am living out this lifestyle and that's just what it is. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the only, the only like bold line I feel comfortable drawing uh, for everyone listening to the podcast because the structure of your own church and the way that the roles and things are defined within your own church to like go back and be like, you, it doesn't apply here, but it applies there. I don't think that's fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would agree with you. I think to the point where like, if someone could be said is uh, representing your church in some way, or is like speaking for your church in some way, then there has to be at least basic moral alignment on what is moral right. or immoral and that we're all fighting in the right direction on that. Um, I think the question that then makes squiggly lines or dotted lines is like, what do you count as leadership? Like as a greeter, some measure of leadership um, is serving the coffee, some measure of leadership because they are representing or kind of speaking or acting on behalf of the church in some way. And so what measure of moral alignment do we require for, you know, I don't know, would you call them like entry level, quote unquote, volunteer serving opportunities um and then uh the subsequent question is like how um consistently are you applying those um because yeah it's it's just one of those things like if you're in a same-sex relationship it's way more visible that that is your situation than maybe a lot of other things that well, would even be equally same, disqualifying. Right. Even in the same, a couple who um, is having sexual relations outside of marriage, like you, you're dealing with, you know, the conversation about relations and, you know, sexuality and all that. So if you have a couple that is continuing to um, have sexual relations outside of marriage, um, I think whatever lines you're drawing should be the same for that couple too. The only issue is uh, you wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and so that becomes just another point of tension is that, like, the person in the same-sex relationship um, is, like, an easy target, I guess, in term for, like, someone confronting them uh, mm-hmm. because it's, it's so visible. Um, yeah. But I would imagine you, before you even have these types of opportunities um, for someone to be more deeply involved like there is an understanding of here is um like what we believe as a church and what we hold to as a church um and just making that clear for their sake as well because you don't want the person who is becoming more involved in church and serving at the church to be caught by surprise by the beliefs of the church yes absolutely because what they're like whoa i didn't even know this I thought you guys loved everybody. All. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I thought I was good, like in in whatever it is that they're walking in, right? Um, I mean, I didn't know you guys were against, you know, me having sexual relations outside of marriage. Like we love each other. We've been dating for how many years? Like it's fine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the the church definitely has to be clear in that process of even before you serve. Um, here are things that we believe and hold to. And that probably speaks to a larger problem of discipleship that a lot of times we're not having those conversations because we're so focused on the event of Sunday morning. Right. Chairs got to get set up. Guitars got to get plugged in. Coffee needs to be served. If you're a portable church, someone's got to drive the trailer. If you're not a portable church, someone's got to be like, you know, out there, you know, cleaning up and doing all the things. It's all, there's a lot of operational things that need to get done. And a lot of times we're we're kind of prioritizing getting the holes filled rather than discipling people into uh, the church. And as a byproduct of that, they're serving in some way that we're just right. like, we got to get the butts and the seats and the people in the door. Oh, you're gay. We can see that that's not right. But mm. we don't ask, don't tell on yeah. a lot of other things. Yeah. Because if we did, it would like cripple our serving teams in mm. some way because now all of a sudden we're creating some kind of barriers um, to be to entry that um, because we don't have adequate discipleship mechanisms right. uh, that our systems can't support that. But we can't support the outlier of the same sex couple who happen to show like we can gatekeep them. Hmm. So I think that that's where it's, a, it's not like an intentional hypocrisy. I don't think. 
No, a, I don't think it's in a lot of pl- in some places it, it it is pretty high handed, but in a lot of other places it's just kind of like we're doing our best, but we're not really discipling our people really well, and then mm-hmm. we're hit with this like boom, like this is really you can really see this, um, and then we react or overreact uh, without addressing the overall discipleship right, system of your church. Right. Well, and that's where you get into issues. I think, like you said, it it becomes more of a discipleship issue overall because you might have a whole lot of other people that are severely misaligned in a lot of other aspects of their own life and their own beliefs and their own worldviews, yet they're serving consistently day in and day out on Sundays. And sure, is there um, opportunity for their hearts to draw closer to Jesus? Yes, of course. But in the same time, there is an aspect of they are stewarding um, some role within the church that you would imagine means they're aligned with the church itself uh, rather than um, like, hey, we just have a need, so let's plug you in, uh, and that and that really is just more challenging um, because there is a very real need. But if we are being clear about our beliefs as a church um, and where we are on things, and uh, what does it look like to be misaligned, and what does it look like to be aligned, um, if you have no sense of that at all as someone attending the church, then I think there there might be a problem somewhere else that isn't necessarily um, in the question of, hey, if somebody's living this immoral thing in their life, do we let them in or do we like tell them no? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the clarity of, hey, here's what it looks like to follow Jesus and here's what it looks like um, to to show fruit of that too and for your life to be transformed by him. It actually means a lot of the things that are uh, very natural to us or things that we find ourselves leaning towards, um, we might have to uproot some of those things for the sake of following Christ because the way that he has is so much richer and so much better than the things that we fill up our lives with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the end of it, this conversation is like very complex and it's actually way broader than Alistair Begg saying one thing to one grandmother about her son's her grandson's wedding. Um, and I never thought that I would be sitting here, uh, finding myself in the position of defending Alistair Begg's conservative bona fides, but here we find ourselves, you know, 2024 is full of surprises already. Um, I think we're on a new trend here because this are. is like our second podcast of doing such a thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Where we're like, no, the conservatives are, <laughs> are correct in this situation the people to our right. Um, uh, but yeah, and and I think there are, again, as we've said, there are legitimate reasons to disagree with the advice that Alistair Begg gave that woman. I think that, yeah, there's a lot of good faith arguments to be made against what he said. Some of them we've made here. Um, but I also think that the fact that so many conservative evangelicals are so willing and so quick to say, you know, farewell, Alistair Begg, despite the fact that, you know, they've been listening to his Bible teaching for decades and he hasn't actually changed his position on marriage or sexuality. The fact that there's so many of us that are willing to just be like, sayonara, uh, is probably symptomatic of a type of homophobia or transphobia that actually goes beyond the bounds of mere theological conviction. And I think that that's something that we do need to reckon with. And that isn't to say that if you disagree with what Beg said, that you're a homophobe or you're a transphobe. Because again, like we're here, we're like, eh, I don't know if we're we're on his side on this one. But that is an opportunity to like check yourself and your own prejudices that may be inhibiting your own witness with people in the LGBTQ community. Because like I said earlier, Jesus hung out with prostitutes, tax collectors. That was a weird thing. He went to their parties. He didn't do what they did. He didn't celebrate what they did. And yet he was in community with them. He had relationships with them. These were his friends that he spent time with. Um, and, and so, uh, it, you know, even to the point where he was like, he was called names for this. Like they thought he was a sinner and a drunkard and, you know, they had all kinds of questions about that. Um, so I think it's important for us to try and figure out how to carry out that same willingness, that same openness without sacrificing our uh, convictions and, and like learning how to do that without sacrificing our convictions. It can be a bit of a tightrope but I believe that that's something that Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, is more than willing to help us to do if we're willing to step into it. 
Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. A powerful prayer life does not require hiking a mountain to be able to hear from God. God can meet us right in the middle of our busy lives to help, guide, and speak to us through prayer. I'm Christina Patterson, host of the Teach Us to Pray podcast, providing practical teaching and encouragement on how you can make prayer a natural and consistent part of your everyday life. I promise it won't require hiking a mountain, but you just might develop the faith to move one. Listen and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.